today, we're actually looking at the, at the, the little book of Ruth. So those of you who are uh, excitedly reading the book of Ruth with me in our preparation time, you should have read the book of Ruth three times before last Sunday. Maybe if you read it again this week, that's four times that you've read it. Um, it's a powerful little book. It's rich and uh, it's very formative for our theology. In fact, it's probably one of the most uh, profound uh, theological treatises without any specific theological references in there. It's just all it's told in this beautiful story. And it's a love story. How many of you kids like love stories? Anybody like a love story? No? Mm, probably not. How many of you older kids like love stories? Anybody like that? I love this because it reminds me that the gospel message is not just about facts and figures. It's not just about sin and redemption, although that's powerful stuff. But when we think about sin and, and the forgiveness of our sins, we're probably thinking about courtrooms and judges and uh, lawyers, attorneys, and so forth. And that's kind of a scary picture. This book reminds me that God is much more, he's much more appealing. He loves a love story. He loves a good love story. And this love story is as good as any that's, in fact, it's probably better than any that's been written. It's a wonderful story that's worth reading again and again. And uh, like a couple of other stories in the Bible, it always brings me to tears. This one and, and the story of Joseph and how he forgives his brothers. I, I can't read through that without bursting into tears when Joseph is trying to hide his emotion from his brothers who don't know who he is. And you guys know that story from the book of Genesis. But um, the book of Ruth is a powerful story because it teaches us about teaches us about the kind of core values we ought to have as believers. And we've been talking about that for a number of weeks now. The, um, the sermon series that I've been teaching, or at least trying to get through, is a, a sermon series called, And They Asked for a King. And uh, I told you a number of times that we, we, need, a, we need a good ruler. We need a good, a good uh, master and lord. Uh, as individuals, we tend to want to do things our own way, but that gets us into trouble. Anybody here ever get in trouble from doing things Frank Sinatra's way? I did it my way. Well, God's given us a better way. And, uh, and the good news is that this book teaches that God is involved in our lives uh, even when we don't see it. Last week we sang that beautiful song, Waymaker, and, and the um, rip, uh, repetitive chorus, uh, even when we don't see him, see it, he's working. He never stops working. This is, this is the God who is invisible and yet visible in, in the events of our lives. I want to read to you, before we read from the book of Ruth, I want to read to you a little bit from the book of Exodus. Can we do that? Exodus chapter 33, if you would just turn there. I want to read you the story of Moses and God's glory. Exodus 33. There's some very interesting words in this passage. Uh, words I've been focusing on all, all week long. And um, in my own study... I've been reading a little bit about, uh, uh, for those of you who've been reading with me, we, we're kind of doing this, um, the, the Bible reading plan. Are any of you guys following along? We're, uh, we're just finishing up with Genesis. Uh, let's see. Oh, hold on. Today, right? Is it today? Or is, yes, today. Finishing Genesis today. So you've read through the, um, you've read through the story of Jacob wrestling with God, right? In that passage where Jacob wrestles with God, I, uh, I started noticing some interesting, uh, interesting things there uh, with regard to Jacob's relationship with God in general. He wasn't a very religious man, Jacob. Uh, his story is a little bit um, disappointing, actually, to tell you the truth, from you know, the stock that he comes from, Abraham and then Isaac. Jacob's story doesn't really play out very well until, until he wrestles with God at, uh, as he's about to cross back over into the Promised Land after 20 years of serving under Laban. Anyway, if you haven't read the story, it's, it's worth reading. But the shortened version of it is that Jacob comes face to face with God. And uh, I don't know that he saw God's actual face. Probably not. But he was certainly very aware of God. And God showed up in, a, in a, what we would call a pre-incarnation um, uh, uh, Christophany or, a, or a, a theophany. God showed up in physical form, but Jacob wrestled with a man, the Bible says. We don't have any indication of who that person was. In the middle of the night, on Jacob's most terrifying night, probably the most terrifying night of his life, after 20 years having 
deceived his parents, deceived his brother, stolen essentially the birthright and the blessing uh, of his father. He's now gone off into a foreign land, kind of lived there for 20 years, hoping that everything smooths over, and now he's headed home. And he's afraid that his brother will kill him. When he left, his brother had murderous designs. And now Jacob is coming back, and he's got a lot of kids. He's got wives and kids. And, and uh, wives, by the way, that's, uh, that's a 4,000-year-old that's thing. Uh, polygamy was a thing back then. It's not now, thank God. Although there are some people who want to try to bring that back. That's weird. And um, for whatever it's worth, no. Um, but, uh, but Jacob had his wives, his children, his livestock, his servants, everybody in his household, and he was coming back to his father's land, and, uh, and he was afraid. And in that place where he was afraid, taking a step essentially of faith, really, but it, was, it seems like he wasn't, I don't know that he was, he was in it with God. He might have been. I mean, the Lord did bless him. His faith was a little testy. God met with him in that place of fear. And God wrestled with him, and, and Jacob refused to let go of God. And what we have in that story is a remarkable display of something that the Hebrew people call chutzpah. Ever heard of chutzpah before? Do I have to explain what chutzpah is? How many of you do not know what chutzpah is? Uh, okay, not you. Okay, all right. Thank you, Gadam. I will explain chutzpah to you because that is an excellent, honest remark right there. So this word chutzpah means courage, I suppose, but it's a little bit more than courage. It's kind of like, well, I don't know. Did you ever hear someone say, wow, that took guts. That took real strength and courage to do something. It took guts. Well, chutzpah is kind of like that. Uh, it's, a, it's a word which doesn't really have a f very good definition or translation, so that's why we've kind of adopted that word from, from the Hebrew language. Anyway, Jacob displayed some of this courage because he was tenacious. He wouldn't let go. He said, God, you've got to bless me. You have to bless me. I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And this becomes a display of something that I think God really, really likes. He really likes. And, uh, and in the book of Ruth, we see some pretty significant chutzpah. Pretty significant. But there's another Hebrew word that we've been talking about for the last few, days, uh, the last few weeks, and it's this word chesed. Chesed, it's um, a Hebrew word which means loving kindness. We've translated it as steadfast love or loving kindness, but really chesed is a covenantal goodness, a covenantal kindness and loyalty that's displayed. And I think um, it's a very important word in the Bible. It's a very important word for us to understand. But these two things, chutzpah and chesed, are important to God, and they show up in the early stories of faith, and they are there for us so that we can begin to recognize these are necessary things in our faith with the Lord. Chesed, in the story of, uh, of Joseph, for example, is Joseph showing loyalty to his brothers and his father, even though they wronged him. He forgives them and is kind to them. Now, at first, he's not kind to them because he, you know, well, I don't know. I think he plays the game a little bit. He wants to see what's he wants to see what's on the inside. Are these guys are these guys worthy of loyalty or not? Because they were very disloyal to him in the beginning. But Joseph shows this beautiful loyalty to his brothers and to his father, and that is chesed in its in a beautiful way, and um, and that is a, a core value. That loyalty that we show to God, the loyalty that we show to the the body of Christ, the loyalty that we show to one another is one of those things that we need to recognize as absolutely imperative core value for the church. We cannot be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ unless we have love for one another, unless we have loyalty for one another. Now, the compassion, loyalty are kind of intertwined because steadfast love is the way the Bible translates chesed. And steadfast love and compassionate love are, are the same kind of idea. So the New Testament version, the First Corinthians version, love is patient, love is kind. This is a demonstration of chesed, I think. And, uh, and it's something we have to have. If we're going to be the body of Christ, if we're going to shine as lights in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, then the core value we have to demonstrate is this love. And not just for God, not just loyalty towards God, but actually loyalty towards one another. But then, in addition to that, 
God wants us to not just demonstrate love. He also wants us to demonstrate chutzpah. The kind of tenacious, bold, impetuous maybe, some might think. The kind of illegal prayers, the prayers that would say, God, I'm not, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. You can't go. I am holding on to you. You absolutely must bless me. This is a core value within the household of faith. We have to have this kind of faith if we are going to mirror our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, then we have to have this kind of chutzpah. Does that make sense? So... Um, Exodus 33, Moses demonstrates a little bit of this. <coughs> Remember I told you that Joseph, uh, Jacob, when, he, when he's getting ready to cross the river, he fights with God. Uh, in that place, God gives him a new name, and he says, your name is no longer Jacob, which means deceiver, but your name is Israel. Israel. And uh, that has a significant meaning. Does anybody know what the name Israel means? No? Yeah? The ones who wrestle with God. It might very well be. Huh. I wonder. I, I wrote this down. I should know this. I, I've known this a million times, but what does the name Israel actually mean? Hmm. It means. Where is it here? God names him. God renames him. Israel, Israel shall be your name. Somebody's got their hand up? Yeah. Isn't that a contradiction of conquer? Thank you. Somebody's speaking from your phone there. Are you guys Googling this? This is actually, this is really good, by the way. I, I'm just, I'm doing this because I can't remember what the name Israel means, but also because it's good for us to figure out how to figure things like that out. Jason, what have you got? God strives. God strives. There we go. God strives or the one who strives with God or the one who conquers God or... God contended. I like that. Do you know that God actually wants to contend with you? God wants to fight with you. He's picking a fight with you. He's picking a fight with you. You know why? Because you can't prove your chesed and you can't therefore prove his chesed until you say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Amen. I love this. It's like a Bible study right here. Fight the good fight of faith. Where does that come from? Ephesians chapter 6. Is that right? Somewhere in there. There's this idea of fighting. There's this idea of not letting go. There's this idea of, ooh, we've got to ask God for things that we never asked for before. We've got to believe him for things we didn't believe for before. This is not us looking for new fast cars or fancy buildings, right? I mean, we've, some of us had these conversations. It's like, no, we're not in this for some kind of name it and claim it thing. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about discovering the, the value of God's word. Have you ever questioned God's word? Of course you have. Have you ever held on to Psalm 91 with all that's in your heart and then, and then pestilence did come near you? And the terror that flies by day or comes by day, that it did come near you. And you're like, mm -mm. my Bible says that if I, if I abide in, under the shadow of Almighty, then these things won't come my way. And yet they do. And the book of Ruth is a story about bad things happening to some pretty decent people. I mean, Eli Melech, the guy who's, you know, we start hearing the story about Eli Melech and within three or four verses he's dead and so are his sons. His name means my God is king. He's not a bad guy. But bad things happen to him. And the story of Naomi and the story of Ruth is about people who hold on to God and say, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Well, Moses did this, Exodus chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Just, just sort of backpedaling a little bit here. 
Moses has got, I don't know, probably 600,000 fighting men and their wives and kids and grandparents and parents and all this kind of stuff. So there's probably about 3 million people that he's trying to lead through a wilderness with no water and no food. So he has a beef with God. And the beef with God is, you told me to bring these people out here, but you haven't told me who's going to go with me. <coughs> right now I'm feeling kind of alone. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Anybody ever feel like they need God to show them their ways, his ways? You're in a place right now where you kind of need God to show you the way. You're like, God, I'm not really sure what's going on. I've trusted you all my life. I'm in this place now, and you are not showing me which way to go. I need you to show me your way. I might be preaching this to myself. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. You want to find favor in God's sight, you kind of need to know him. But Moses is saying, I can't really know you until you show me your ways. I don't understand how to know you, Lord. I want to find favor. I want to do this right. But I need you to show me your ways. And... Uh, Consider, too, that this nation is your people. It just makes it perfectly, perfectly clear to God. These people that you had me go and you know, pull out of Egypt, there, these are your people. It's not my people, God. It's your people right here. This is your story. You made me do this. You've got to show me your way. And God says, and he said, my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you. The word presence there is the Hebrew word panim. The word panim shows up in the Jacob story where Jacob uh, wrestles with God, kind of sees him panim to panim, face to face. And he renames the place. So God renames Jacob, calls him Israel, the one who contends with God. But, but Jacob, who, who says, tell me what your name is, and he doesn't tell him what his name is. Jacob says, well, in that case, I'm going to call this place the face of God. So he names the place Peniel, which is from Panim, which means the face of. But it also, the word Panim, is, it has a number of meanings in the text, quite, quite a few meanings. And it's used interchangeably with not only the face, but it, it also means to go ahead of. So in that same passage, in the Jacob passage, you see Jacob sending gifts ahead of himself to his brother Esau in the hopes that these gifts will soften his brother's heart as his brother's coming to, you know, he thinks, to kill him. After 20 years of waiting to take back his birthright. So he sends a gift ahead with a servant, you know, a whole bunch of sheep, and then a next gift of camels and so forth. And, and, and his brother eventually comes to him and says, what's, what's the deal with all these gifts? And he says, I've sent these ahead, panim, ahead. Essentially, the gifts are there as the face of Jacob. They go ahead of him in front of his face, and they are his face. So this concept then becomes an idea for us that God's face is seen in his going ahead of us. The panim, the face of God, is seen in the fact that his presence is with us even though we don't see him. And we know that his presence is with us because he goes ahead of us and opens up the way. If you think about Israel going to the Red Sea and standing in front of the Red Sea, Egyptian army behind them, Red Sea in front of them, and they're thinking, okay, this is where we all die. This is where we all perish. What does God do? He makes the east wind blow all night and the waves part and the, and the, and, and the Israelites wake up in the morning and it's dry ground in front of them and they walk through because God has gone ahead of them. And behind them, he closes up the gates. He closes up the door. So he goes before and he goes behind. And so when Moses says, God, show me your ways, this is what God says. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Now that word rest, interesting word. Because in the book of, he in the book of Ruth, we're going to see Naomi use that word when, he sa when she says in chapter 1 to, to uh, Orpah and Ruth, when Naomi speaks to them and says, look, I don't have anything left in me. I don't have anything to give you. I've got no husband. I've got no sons. My sons were your husbands. They're dead. I don't have anyone else to redeem you. I've got nothing else to give. You should just go home. And may the Lord bless you and give you rest. 
And the word that she says for rest there in that context is, may the Lord give you rest in the house of a husband. May the Lord give you marriage is what she's saying. Because, of course, in that era, the, uh, the women were, uh, were really um, only ever at rest, as it were, and at peace when they were part of a family, part of a family group. Yeah, I told, I'm sorry, the kids, it's a bit boring, the sermon for them, because it's, it's definitely prepared for the older kids. <laughs> so when Moses asks God, what are your ways? Show me your ways. God says, I will go with you. My presence will be, my panim will be with you. I'm the God who goes ahead of you, and I will show you my, myself through going in front of you, going ahead of you. And I will give you marriage is what he's saying. The, the ways of God are God wants loyalty, chesed, and he also wants some chutzpah, because this, this is what Moses is going to say here. He says, for how uh, my presence will go with, with you, um, and I will give you rest. And so Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. There's a little chutzpah right there. That's Moses saying, okay, your presence is going to go with us. Your, 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 your panim is going to go with us. You're going to go ahead of us, and you're going to prepare the way for us. Awesome. Because if you don't, don't even take us up from here. That's some chutzpah. That's like one of those conversations between a husband and a wife where the, uh, the wife lays down the law and says to her husband, listen, you said it, now you're going to do it. Right? A marriage that is not a two-way street is not a healthy marriage, wouldn't you say? And God, it turns out, is not looking for the kind of relationship with us that doesn't have a little bit of pushback. Turns out, God likes us to be a little testy. <laughs> I heard that, Tara. I heard that. Tara says, maybe not a lot, but a little bit, yeah. I think God is well pleased when we refuse to take no for an answer. Sometimes God says no to test our hearts. Are we really in this for him? Or are we in this for ease? Do we just want to be relaxed? Listen, don't bother me. I just want to sit on the couch, okay? I don't want to do anything. Yeah. A friend of mine once told me that there's a difference between the word content and contend. And I think God likes them both. He likes one who is content with what they have but who will contend for his will and his ways. So, don't even take us up from here, he says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face, Panim, of the earth? Interesting. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. You have found favor in my sight. Moses steps it up and God says, no, you, 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 that's good. You can ask that question. You can, press the, you can press the issue because you're pressing into something that I actually want for you. This is my will for you. Listen, if you don't think that, that I'm on the right track here, I just want to remind you of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, multiple times, the same prayer to God saying, please remove this cup from me. Don't you think that Jesus already knew that his father wanted him to go to the cross? And yet he prayed three times fervently to the point where he was bleeding sweat. His sweat was like blood. And he continued to ask God, you know why? Chutzpah. <laughs> now, it didn't change God's heart. But it certainly solidified for Jesus that the will of the Lord was the cross. There's no other way, Jesus. That's the way to go. And so in our questioning of God, in our pursuit of God, we won't always get the answer that we're looking for. That's not what I'm trying to suggest here. But I am suggesting that we shouldn't just take no for an answer. Because sometimes the no that you hear is not actually the permanent no. 
Listen, Abraham expressed this chutzpah with God when he was negotiating for the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you remember that story? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would be contending for the, the, the well-being of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, I don't know. Politically, I, I kind of would say I'd like to vote for whoever else will come in and replace the government of Sodom and Gomorrah because those guys are not doing it right. So, Lord, punish them by all means. Rain down your fire on them. But Abraham said, mm, no, no. Well, of course, he knew he had his own relative living there. But I think Abraham had a sense of compassion because he says, will you destroy the righteous with the unrighteous, God? What about your name? Abraham's fighting for the people, but he's also fighting for the very name of God, isn't he? And so he negotiates with God and he tries, you know, 50 maybe, maybe 45. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? God says, Abraham, for 10. 10 righteous, I'll save the city. That's a pretty impressive demonstration of chutzpah. And God seems to really like that. Because it's after that that he blesses Abraham, doesn't he? And says, the same time next year I'll come by and you'll, your wife's going to have that son. The one that we promised all this time. Seems like God's waiting on Abraham to show some <clears throat> get up and go before the promise is fulfilled in his life. And I wonder if that's what God's looking for in your life and my life as well. How much do we really actually trust God? How much do we really believe what he has to say? How much are we willing to, how much are we willing to put out there in risk in order to pursue the heart of God? This very thing you've spoken, I will do. For, you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says, please show me your glory. Show me your glory, Lord. I, I want to see your glory. Listen, it's, it's all fine and well that your face goes ahead of us, but I want to see your glory. I want to see, I want to see the, the majesty of God. Because right now all I'm seeing in this place is I'm seeing needy people, lack of resources, no real direction, False gods, I've got your word and I've got fire on the mountain, but God, I need to see your glory. And Moses has got a legitimate question here, a legitimate desire. So God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you. Oh, by the way, the word before, panim. I will make my goodness pass panim before you and will proclaim panim, my name, the Lord, and I will... Be gracious to you, uh, to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What are, we, what are we hearing here? I'll be gracious on whom I'll be gracious to and show mercy to. What does that make you think of? Well, it's going to make you think about the, 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 the Lord is gracious and merciful, isn't it? That's coming. It's coming. All right. But he said, you cannot see my panim, my face, for man shall not see me and live. Hmm. I'm going to show you my panim, but you can't see my panim. What is he, what's he, what's he saying? I think what he's saying is we're not going to see the physical face of God. You're not, you can't ask God for that. He's not going to show it to you. But you can ask for God to show you his glory. And he will let his goodness pass before you. And he will show you through his goodness and kindness that he is in fact there and that you are his. And he will give you marriage. He will give you rest. Marriage is a metaphor, okay? Don't worry. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. I will cover you as I pass by. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is too much for you. <coughs> The glory of the Lord is too much for you. But God will cover you. He will shelter you with his hand. What does that sound like? He's going to shelter you with his hand? Doesn't it sound like something else you may have heard before somewhere else? In one of the Psalms, I mean, you wouldn't have heard it at this point because this is early on in the Bible, but later we have the benefit of... of um, oh, thank you, Danny. We have the benefit of, uh, of knowing the Scriptures. So what is... Thank you. 
What does that sound like? He will shelter you with his wings. Shelter you with his wings. Oh, he will shelter you under, under his wings where he will give you rest. Hmm. Keep that in mind. Behold, there's a place by me where you can stand on the rock. Wow. Don't need to explain that, right? And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. Wow, the rock cleft for me. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. What does that sound like? The Passover. I will cover you in the cleft of the rock. And the cleft one, I will cover you. So this is in Christ, who is the rock of ages. We're covered by God as the glory of the Lord passes by. And all those who are not covered die, basically. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my panim, my face, you shall not see. Wow. For those of you who are saying, I, I just, I don't know where you are, God. I'm not sure I believe you because I can't see you. God says to you, I can't let you see me because you can't handle it. But if you'll open up your eyes, you'll see where I've been. If you look at your life, you'll see where I've been. You will look at your life and you will see that I have been with you everywhere. I have never left you. I have never forsaken you. I was there. I am here and I will be here. And you can absolutely trust me. That's what he's saying. So he does it. Uh, chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. <laughs> In the proclamation of the name of the Lord, his presence is there. That's why we call upon the name of Jesus Christ. As we call upon his name, he's right here with us. As we gather in his name, he's right here with us, the Bible tells us. Same principle. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed. Abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. <laughs> his blessing to thousands. His punishment, three or four generations. That's a merciful God, isn't it? Now, as that theme develops throughout the scripture, if you look for it, you'll see it here, you'll see it in a few other places, but you'll, you'll, you'll see it in the Psalms. And, uh, and when you see it in the Psalms, it has changed a little bit. The, uh, the, the, the declaration of the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, it changes. And the, it's, it's a, it makes for a great study if you go and look for it. Search it out and make a study and ask yourself, why is it changing all this time? Because God is revealing more and more of himself as time goes by. And if you do a study of that, you're going to see more and more of the nature of God, the attributes of God. It's very, very awesome. It's going to make you worship him. It really is. But I wanted you to see that because this is the, this is the Lord who goes before us. This is the Lord whose presence, his panim, goes before us. Now, in the book of Ruth, <laughs> since I still have a few minutes, in the book of Ruth, is the story not actually all about the God who goes before them? And yet, the God who goes before them is relying in the story upon the chutzpah of Ruth. Nothing in the story would happen unless Ruth showed that kind of tenacity. Naomi also shows it. She shows, she shows it in chapter 1 where she says, I'm going home. I'm going home. I'm in the wrong place, she says. My life is bitter. Everything is wrong. This is not how I'm supposed to be. Once I went out blessed. Once I went out and full, and now I have returned empty. Don't even call me Naomi, which means blessed. She says, no, rather call me Mara, which means bitter. She comes back to her hometown bitter, but she comes back home. And she doesn't stay bitter because God begins to change her. Have you got bitterness in your life that you're dealing with? Disappointments, grief that you just can't overcome? I want to tell you, return to the Lord. Don't run away from God. Run to God. Show some chutzpah. 
say, no, 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 no. The faithfulness of God is written in the pages. The steadfast love of God is written in the pages. Surely you are that God, are you not? Are you not the God of Abraham? Are you not the God of Isaac? Are you not the God of Jacob? Are you not the God of Moses? Are you not the God of Ruth? Therefore, I know that I will contend with you, for you have said you will never leave me nor forsake me. Therefore, I will say like the psalmist, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I think we live in a generation where people give up way too quickly. It's a divorce culture. We just give up. It's, it's part of the innate sort of modern way. We don't make commitments. I mean, if, if we use relationships as, as a litmus uh, test, is it, is it not true? I mean, God was using marriage as a, as a metaphor, right? So if we look at our culture and we see, well, people say they love each other, but they refuse to make commitment to each other. They want friendship with benefits, but they say, mm, well, we'll you know, it's probably better this way that we don't have a commitment because if we don't, you know, we'll always be on our toes. And besides, it's expensive to get a divorce. So if you don't ever get married, you don't have to get a divorce. So what do we have? We have relationships built on something less than loyalty and commitment. We have relationships that are built on, what can I get out of you right now? You look good. That's awesome. You make me feel great about myself. That's wonderful. You help me to become all that I can be. You raise me up. <laughs> Isn't that just self-centered and narcissistic? Isn't that... Part of the reason why our world is the way it is, our northeastern privileged world is the way it is, because we refuse to have any kind of loyalty whatsoever. And when it comes to difficult stuff, we're like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that we were incompatible. See ya. There's no chutzpah. There's no saying, ah, ah, ah. I remember we made a commitment to each other. We made a covenant until death do us part, in sickness or in health. In, for richer, for, for poorer, for better, for worse, we are in this. And, and you know what? I am not letting go. But that, that translates not only in, in our, into our relationships, our, our romantic relationships with one another, but it translates into, yeah, it translates into friendships and family. Like something goes wrong with a family and you're like, see ya. You know what, mom, dad, you really freaked me out. You frustrated me. You disappointed me. I'm not coming home for Thanksgiving. In fact, I'm not coming home for Christmas. You know what I'm going to do with your Christmas gifts that you send? I'm going to send them back or I'll stomp them. I'm not opening your letters. You know why we do that? Because we just have a culture that's based on what's good for me. There's no sacrifice. The reason why that hits home is because each one of us longs for the kind of relationship that doesn't give up on us. You know why? Because we know how broken we are. We know how broken we are. And the core value of the kingdom of God is we don't give up on people because they're broken. We don't give up on people because they're poor. We don't give up on people because they are different. We don't give up on people because they're foreign. We don't give up on people because they have no connections. We don't give up on people because they have no money. We don't give up on people because God did not give up on us. And so um, I mentioned last week Ruth's conversion to faith is in spite of the fact that Naomi blames God for what's going on, which is a profound connection, I think, to make. Because Naomi's faith was obviously greater than her disappointment, which shows loyalty. We don't have to be living on the top of our game to reach our community for Christ. Because that's, that's unrealistic. 
<laughs> Wiggly, huh? It's good stuff. Don't worry, man. You're good. It's unrealistic that we're going to be at the top of our game all the time. What if we try to build a church that just always looks like it's at the top of its game? That's right, they can't. I think it's better to build a church that recognizes that we have disappointment. We're disappointed with each other. Take around, take a look around the room. Don't nod at somebody and be like, mm, he's talking about. <laughs> but you see all those people out there? They probably don't think a whole lot about you, but if they did, they might be disappointed with you. How's that make you feel? When you look around the room, maybe you've got a few relationships in this room that you're pretty disappointed with as well. Take a look right here at the pulpit. Ta-da! No disappointments here whatsoever, right? Yeah, okay. Listen, we're not building a perfect church. Christ is building a perfect church. The Holy Spirit's the one who's building the perfect church. We just need to gather. We just need to be there. We just need to say, I'm not letting go until you bless me, Lord. And in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, you see Ruth do that. And we don't have time to read that now. I, I could preach all day. I'm so excited. I'm so pumped about this at the moment. But I just want you to, I want you to see uh, just exactly how much chutzpah this woman has. And this is where I'm going to end today's sermon. The, the time's up thing just flashed at the back. So I'm going to. Read this passage for you. I want you to hear the chutzpah in it. When Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Ruth the Moabite. Remind me to tell you guys what that is all about. Moab, that means of a father. And he was the son of one of the daughters of Lot fathered by their father, Moab. It's a long story. The Bible has some pretty weird stories, just saying. Um, never a boring moment in Genesis, right? Anyway, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. First things first, Ruth says, they've just arrived in this new land. Ruth says, let me go and work. I'm, I'm going to go get some work. And the gleaning work, I uh, don't have time to explain that all for you, but um, found out that you can actually look up gleaning on, uh, on Google. It'll tell you, right? And um, uh, we had this, had this conversation the other day. It was really fun. Um, gleaning, it was uh, part of what the poor people did behind the harvesters. And uh, so she said, I'm not going to sit around and wait for somebody to give us something for things to happen. I'm just... I'm going to get out there and do some work. Can I do some work? It's harvest season. Might as well work now. And uh, Naomi says, go, my daughter. See how she's submitted to the authority of her mother-in-law? She doesn't just go and work, but she submits to the authority. There's loyalty recognized right there, right? I mean, it's pretty common sense. She needs to work, but she submits to the, to the mother-in-law. Woo-hoo. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> anyway. Um, so she went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And then... It happened to come to the part. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The original text says, as luck would have it, she came to that part of the field that belonged to Boaz. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's like, hmm, yeah, as luck would have it. Ha-ha. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is God who is going ahead. This is the panim of God, isn't it? She decides, I'm going to go work. And what happens? Turns out God's gone ahead of her. You can't sit around waiting for God to show up. You need to do your work. And trust God. (coughs) She came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Eli Melech. Eli Melech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Don't you love that? Bethlehem, the house of bread. <laughs> she needs bread. She's going to glean. And here comes 
the man from the very house of bread. What a wonderful thought. And, um, and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. Isn't that a blessing? That's a blessing, right? So he comes almost like a priestly figure. The Lord be with you. And also with you. <laughs> well, they answer, the Lord bless you. So there's just blessing happening. It's a wonderful season. It's harvest. Of course there's blessing. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. It's a glorious season for Boaz. And they answered, the Lord, the Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man, there's a lot of young people here. He said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, Who's, uh, whose young woman is this? He noticed her right away. Now, it may be that he just happens to know all the young people that are working for him. Maybe, or maybe he just, you know, like, hmm, wow. Hmm. She called me Zayat. Like, who is this girl? And, uh, and so the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite. There's that word Moabite again. The, the foreigner who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Yeah. In other words, don't touch her, man. She's a Moabite. Moabite. You're not allowed to touch Moabites. So, you know, I'm just giving you the heads up. Hey, I know you're kind of asking about her, but uh, she's a Moabite, man. You should leave her alone. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. We're going to stop there because I want you to see something in what she's asking. If you know anything about gleaning, uh, and, and this is where you can go and Google it and find out for yourself. But the gleaners don't glean in the harvest with the harvesters, with the reapers. Here's how they would harvest. They would take, you know, they didn't have combine harvesters in those days. So the wheat, the barley, and barley in this case, would grow and it's like long, tall grass. And they'd go in there and they'd grab a handful of the stuff with one hand, left hand. With the right hand, they have a sickle and they'd cut it off. Okay, and then they'd lay down that bundle and somebody would come up and bundle that together with a bunch of other bundles and they'd make a big old heap. And that was called... Uh, yeah, well, there was a, there was a, yeah, it was called harvesting. So they had different measures for this. An omer of wheat was what you would get from one handful of, of you know, or, or an omer of barley from one handful. And uh, anyway, so what happened when they do that is they wouldn't, they'd move pretty fast through a place. And if they grabbed a handful and they missed a couple of stalks, those stalks would still be standing. But they wouldn't go back because they needed to move quickly to get through the whole harvest. You don't want to leave your harvest in the field unharvested for too long. So what would happen is that uh, the bundlers would come, they'd bundle everything, and once they'd bundled everything and it had been taken to the warehouse or, or to the storage area, then the gleaners could come and they could take whatever was left. And you, they weren't allowed to glean, they weren't allowed to reap all the way to the edges of the field. They had to leave the corners and so forth. This was part of the way that God sort of developed a, uh, just a little bit of social welfare within the nation of Israel. They were to think about the poor, the widows, the orphans. These are the ones that they were to consider, the underprivileged or the people who were in, in, you know, down on their luck, as it were. And they were to leave space for them. It wasn't just a freebie. They didn't hand off free food to them. They left the food in the field and they'd have to go and harvest it for themselves. So for whatever it's worth, it was a pretty decent way of developing a social welfare system. And the young would go out and harvest on, on behalf of, of, of the elderly. And so what Ruth is asking here is not that. Take a closer look. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. Those are taboo. Okay, something we can talk about at another time. But she's asking, look here, she says, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Among the sheaves. In other words, before the sheaves have been taken to the barn, let me glean right there. That is chutzpah. chutzpah. <laughs> it's like going to Panera to get the leftovers for what's going to be upstairs, all our little pastries that you guys should take home today, by the way. We always throw away a lot of that. But that's that was baked last night. But it would be like going to Panera at 9 o'clock in the morning and saying, can I just reap some of, can I glean some of the, the leftovers right now while it's still hot and fresh? What do you think Panera is going to say to you? <laughs> See ya, buddy. You want that? You pay for that. But no, she's asking more but she's not asking for more for herself everybody knows who she is and you'll find that out as we look here her reputation has gone ahead of her 
She's not asking for herself. She's asking for Naomi. She's asking for loyalty. She's asking for Boaz. She doesn't even know it's Boaz yet, but she's asking for the owner of the field to do more than what was required of the law. She's asking for not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. She's saying, I don't just want the, the gleanings from the edge of the field. I'm asking you to really genuinely take care of us. We have legitimate need. I'm willing to work for it. I'll even work for pay if you'll hire me. I'm not one of your servants, but if you'll hire me as one of your servants, I'll do that. But I'm asking you to take care of us because we need more than what the letter of the law is going to give us. And I think, as we close it up here, I think that's what God wants from you and me. Do you want a letter of the law relationship with God? Because he does not want that relationship with you. Are you going to take out 10% of your earnings and give it to God in your tithe check? I mean, that would be nice. That would be great. But letter of the law, man, if you're tithing down to the penny, that's wonderful if your heart is in it and you're really giving to God. But if you're doing it because you're thinking, well, let me give God what is his due so he leaves me alone or at least you know, blesses me or whatever, but I'm just going to take care of that business and that will be done. That's a letter of the law relationship. That is not the kind of relationship God wants with his spouse. And by the way, that's what he wants to give you. He wants to give you rest as his spouse. Spousal language has always been the language of God with his people. Marriage is a huge thing. We saw it in the Garden of Eden. It's not good for man to be alone. So God makes woman to be with man. Is it not true that Christ is the new Adam and that the church is his bride taken from his side, the pierced side of Christ? Is it not true that the church is the bride of Christ? Don't you see the correlation? He's not looking for a letter of the law relationship. And he's certainly not looking for the divorce culture that is so prevalent amongst us. I'm looking for a king. Are you looking for a king? I'm looking for a ruler. Majestic. I'm also looking for romance with the lover of my soul who cares about me. Today I want you to know that he cares about you. The book of Ruth is a story about how God cares. God cares about even the ones everybody else rejects. God cares about you. He knows you. His face goes before you. Oh, doesn't your heart yearn to know this God? Why would you not want to give him your life? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, that the hardships in our lives are an invitation for us to press into you. Oh, Lord, as my friend Bob Sorge says, it may seem like a tomb to us, but it's a womb from which the purposes of God will be birthed in our lives if we don't give up. Abba, I pray for this congregation. I pray for each one of us that our faith would grow that we would not be insipid, but that we would be brave, bold, filled with courage. In the name of Jesus, amen.